basically. Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fighter? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. OMP? Go. AFC? RAO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Go. Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. Last episode, we followed the fate of Gemini 8, which started out with such high hopes before it started, well, spinning out of control, um, literally. Now, uh, by the end of that episode, we'd managed to get Neil Armstrong and Dave Scott home to uh, Aquafirma, as the saying goes. Even though their return was a little earlier, uh, like two days earlier than planned. And, even though they'd already used uh, a bit of their re-entry fuel to stop the spin cycle caused by their failed maneuvering jet, they had splashed down on the western Pacific under the watchful eye of rescue aircraft, and within 15 minutes they had rescue divers in the water with them. They still had another three hours to wait before the destroyer USS Mason arrived to get them. And while those three hours <laughs> were not at all comfortable bobbing in their spacecraft in some pretty choppy seas, it wasn't the most uncomfortable they had been on their flight, and it also uh, wasn't some uncharted wilderness, as they feared it might be. In fact, the re-entry and recovery operation had gone pretty well. I'd go so far as to say it was actually a high point of the mission in some ways. Okay, it wasn't as big a deal as doing the first ever docking of two spacecraft, and it certainly wasn't going to make the headlines outside NASA, at least not in a good way. But the response by the crew and by mission control to the failure on orbit had actually been something, I think, to kind of take pride in. It's true that NASA had not been able to salvage the mission, but they had saved the crew. And that was actually not at all a given at a certain point in the mission. Spinning out of control while rapidly running out of fuel, uh, good ideas and options, uh, the crew had been in serious danger. The fact that they found a way out was, first of all, a testament to the crew. Uh, there are probably actually few better examples of why NASA wanted test pilots as astronauts than the response of Armstrong and Scott to their situation. I mean, they were quite literally in a fight for their lives 300 kilometers above the Earth, and while being spun at a rate that would have completely disoriented the average human, they still managed to evaluate their options, investigate them, report their situation to the ground when they got in touch, and explain their actions, discuss their options, select the right one, and implement it. And they managed to document the failure with data and photographs. And, having survived a near-death experience, they then went back and exposed themselves to it again in a controlled way by re-enabling the system that had just finished trying to kill them to see just how it had managed to do that. It's actually a pretty impressive achievement. In some ways, it's all the more impressive because it was pretty much exactly what the crew expected they might have to do every time they climbed aboard. Now, the flight contribution of the flight control team, while less obvious, was also an important part of saving the mission. Um, the speed with which the ground adapted to the new reality with which they were confronted when Gemini 8 finally came back over the horizon after docking says a lot about the culture of mission control as well as the mindset of the flight control team. 
Well, the situation that confronted the team uh, when uh, Armstrong and Scott announced that they had undocked and were spinning out of control was certainly not one that the flight control team had practiced to that point. Um, It was probably not by any means any more bizarre than some of the other scenarios that they'd been subjected to by the SimSoup and his team. I mean, we've talked about it before, but it is really important to remember uh, that then, as now, flight controllers spent as much time in simulated missions dealing with simulated failures as they did working on actual missions. This really did breed a culture where flight controllers were very comfortable dealing with contingency. I think it's important not to minimize the effect of this culture. I mean, the response of normal human beings confronted with real or incipient failure particularly catastrophic failure, is to some extent to disbelieve it, to minimize its effect, to continue to press on with the current plan. Um, I suppose this is natural, uh, because in our daily lives, to do otherwise would leave us constantly reacting to imagined catastrophes and unable to function. The trick for flight controllers was to develop techniques for reacting to failure, but not overreacting to it. To embrace contingency, which makes the average flight controller both suspicious of even very small, unexplained anomalies, but also very methodical in understanding those anomalies, and in applying potential solutions in a way that preserves um, as many available options for as long as possible. But it also means that when it is clear that action is required, new plans are rapidly made, evaluated, remade, and reviewed by everyone who might be affected, or who might have important input. So it was with Gemini 8. While the crew solved the proximate problem pretty much on their own, mission control uh, was then left with the urgent problem of how to complete the mission safely. Within minutes of finally stopping the spinning, Rich Hodge had already evaluated the situation and come to the conclusion that the rest of the mission activities had to be suspended and the crew needed to come home. Um, He had realized very quickly that the re-entry had to be accomplished also in the next orbit, which by the time they made that decision meant they had probably about 60 minutes to plan the maneuver. Now, that may not seem like a Herculean task in 2023 when we literally have computer games that can simulate spacecraft orbits and calculate re-entry trajectories in less time than it takes to click a mouse, But in 1966, the calculation of a re-entry trajectory was still a a bit of an arcane mystery. The math required to go from a free-falling elliptical orbit around the planet to a trajectory that intersected with the planet was actually not at all simple, and only a few people on the planet actually had experience in doing that calculation. Well, thankfully, most of them worked in mission control. Now, it's true that they did not need to rely on slide rules to complete the calculations. They did have a computer in mission control. Actually, they had two, and each of them occupied an entire room. In the time available to the flight controllers to make a re-entry decision, each of those computers probably could perform precisely one re-entry trajectory calculation. Uh, I have to admit I'm guessing about that, but I'm pretty sure it's true. So what was going on behind the scenes, in the back rooms of the flight controllers in the trench, was that the practitioners of the black art of re-entry planning were tracing lines on their maps of the planet, trying to find places on the surface where they could make their expected re-entry trajectories intersect with the lines of patrol ships and vessels so that the spacecraft and recovery sources could arrive at the same place at the same time. And this was not an unusual exercise for flight controllers, it's um, pretty much what they did. 
and what they were trained to do. Um, they were probably pretty good at this point at finding all of the possible options available. The difference this time was that they got to pick exactly two solutions. My guess is that one would have been the prime and the other the backup. After discussion with the front room, these options would probably have been shown to the flight director for quick confirmation before sending them off to the computers for detailed calculations. Lord knows how long it required to program a room-sized computer whose input and output was almost certainly accomplished with punch cards to do a re-entry calculation, uh, much less run it, and then decode its output. Given that the output then had to be verified and then programmed into the command sequencers for upload to the spacecraft, and then that prospective upload had to be checked, I'm guessing several times. And then the burn sequences would have to be translated into procedures for the crew. Capcom and flight would have had to have been briefed. Capcom, in particular, would probably have required at least a little convincing that the crew was not going to end up in some deserted mountain peak or maybe worse, bobbing alone in the vast Pacific Ocean in their tiny cork of a space capsule for hours on end while the Navy and Air Force tried to find them. Finally, finally, when Gemini 8 came back into view over Coastal Century once again, barely 90 minutes since the ground had learned of their plight, they would have, uh, have to have been presented with a mature plan and a verified and validated command sequence uplink that they would begin to execute half an orbit later. It was at one time uh, a pretty impressive feat of real-time engineering, eh, and exactly what the team in Mission Control expected that they might have to do every time they set foot in the building. In this way, both the crew and the flight controllers did represent a culture that was adept at dealing with contingency. Now, it certainly isn't the only place where such cultures exist, but certainly, in my experience, creating a culture that is successful at dealing with contingency is both harder and more valuable than you might think. It's another one of the reasons why I think it's worth remembering the early days of NASA and thinking about how it achieved what it did. Now, by the way, while it is fair to say that mission control responded smoothly to the crisis, <laughs> the same was not true for the rest of NASA. In a variety of ways, NASA management was caught very much off guard by the events of Gemini 8. Uh, the reasons for this have really nothing at all to do with the mission itself, but other factors uh, completely coincidental, really. To some extent, it was really a question of uh, Murphy's Law and having the crisis on orbit occur at exactly the most inopportune time. I mean, just consider how rapidly things happened on orbit. Uh, for six and a half hours, the Gemini crew had been performing the rendezvous. They'd been docked with the Gina for probably a bit more than half an hour. Half an hour after that, they knew they were coming home. Less than 90 minutes after that, they were getting their re-entry program, and 45 minutes after that, they were doing the retro burn. They splashed down only 10 and a half hours after launch. It was the speed of the transition that caught everyone off guard. For instance, a team of senior McDonnell engineers had been in Florida for launch. They normally stayed until the end of the first orbit, or so, to make sure things were off to a good start, and then they flew to Houston to be available as second-line support to MCC. On this day, they stayed a bit longer in Florida to follow the rendezvous operations, and then they headed to the airport and caught their flight. Over New Orleans, between Florida and Texas, the pilot came on to inform them that the news media were reporting that an emergency re-entry was being planned. 
They knew no more of the situation until they landed in Houston, and by the time they reached MCC, the flight was essentially over. This wasn't a huge issue for Gemini 8, but since pretty much the entire McDonnell Engineering and Management team had been on the flight, it meant that um, uh, a high, had a high-level decision been required, there was no one available who would have been able to be consulted. In response, McDonnell actually changed their internal procedures so that senior managers would not all be in transit at the same time during a mission, and the management team was split between Houston and Florida during flights. Uh, for NASA senior management, the situation was worse, or at least more disconcerting. Um, it happened that the launch of Gemini 8 just happened to coincide that year with the Goddard Dinner in Washington, which was sort of the event of the year uh, for NASA. The whole NASA management team attended. The guest speaker was the vice president, Hubert Humphrey. As the guests arrived for dinner, all the talk was, no doubt, about the great year that NASA had been having and how they were about to achieve yet another first by docking two spacecraft on orbit. At the pre-dinner reception, Deputy Administrator Robert Siemens was given a message indicating that there was an emergency on orbit. By the time he got through to mission control, the spacecraft were separated and the spinning had stopped, but he was also informed that Gemini 8 was uh, effectively already over. Uh, in the end, it was his task to make an announcement publicly at dinner about the situation and to keep the vice president informed so that he could provide an update when he began his post-dinner remarks, by which time the capsule had already splashed down and he was able to announce that Armstrong and Scott were safe. Manned spaceflight director George Mueller was in the air on his way from Florida to Washington for the same dinner when he learned of the issue. The plane turned around and returned to the Cape. He arrived back at the Mercury Control Center after a bit of a hair-raising motorcycle-escorted uh, drive in time for the retro-firing. So, while all in all, Gemini 8 went into the record books as an undoubted success, and it was the second successful rendezvous, the first successful docking, and actually a completely successful Agena flight as well. And it was also a validation of both the crew and ground controller training and preparedness to deal with serious issues uh, in trying circumstances. But it also was very much pointed out the fact that the statement, you're only as good as your uh, last game, is actually not true in space. In space, <laughs> actually, you're only as good as your next one. Despite the fact, or maybe because of the fact, that NASA had had a pretty good run of success, success in the face of adversity, um, they were still a little susceptible to the dangers of uh, complacency. Gemini 8 was very much a reminder that regardless of how much experience the team had, there were still ways in which they could be surprised, and that, in some ways, the biggest threat was in assuming that you knew the answer. While without engaging in detailed and completely unfair bout of Monday, Monday morning quarterbacking, um, to me, the lesson taught by Gemini 8 is always to be suspicious of anything you haven't done before, and even to be suspicious of things you have done before if you haven't done them a lot. Now, NASA had not done a docking on orbit before. That task in itself was not expected to be all that difficult once it was planned carefully, and in fact the docking itself was a bit of an anticlimax. Uh, but what didn't get the same level of attention, it seems, was the fact that NASA had never actually operated 
a combined spacecraft before. This turned out to be a much riskier proposition than NASA realized. Not so much because of the engineering or physics, but because of the merging of the two vehicle systems, not just on orbit, but all the way to the ground. When the two vehicles were joined, they were one vehicle. Each of their systems affected the other, even if those two systems were isolated from each other, electrically and logically. They were still connected mechanically. That also meant that the teams on the ground actually had to be merged as well, since actions by Genia controllers affected Gemini and vice versa. There was really only one flight control team, not two. Not realizing this complexity, NASA had then scheduled its first experience in uh, joint spacecraft operations to occur at a time when there was very little communication between the ground and orbit. And since the crew on orbit had only pretty rudimentary ability to gain any insight into Agena, the Agena half of the new spacecraft, it robbed them of precious insight when they needed it most. With slightly different planning, it's quite possible that Gemini 8 could have ended very differently if NASA had gone into it with a different mindset. I mean, this is, of course, speculation on my part. But for what it's worth, it was also a conclusion reached by Gene Kranz and others after the mission, so it's not entirely unfair. In particular, if the docking operation had been delayed until the ground could monitor the joint spacecraft after docking, the ground would have been able to check whether or not there was any indication of an Agena malfunction, which the crew on orbit could not. Seeing uh, no obvious malfunction on Agena, it would, or should, have been natural to look for malfunctions on the Gemini side. While still attached to Agena, it would have been possible to safely disable the Gemini maneuvering system without resorting to the reentry thrusters. Then the same testing that Neil Armstrong performed on orbit to isolate the failed number 8 thruster could have been done, and the problem could have been diagnosed without having to use up that precious reentry fuel. Now, whether that would have allowed the mission to continue is a question that can't be answered, but it certainly would have been a much more controlled way of working through the problem and it would certainly have preserved more options. Again, my point here is not to second-guess the NASA engineers, managers, and astronauts at the time. The point is to understand the way things played on or out on orbit was, at least in part, due to the way the team, both astronauts and flight controllers, prepared for the flight. In the case of Gemini 8, during preparation and training for the flight, the Agena had been treated effectively as a foreign object. Not only that, it was treated effectively as a foreign object that couldn't really be trusted. Gemini controllers and crew, before and during the flight, were conditioned to believe that if problems occurred during docked operations, they would be the fault of Agena. That assumption, in effect, was their undoing, or almost their undoing. As Gene Kranz himself admitted, the lesson that when two objects dock, they become one spacecraft, was to be an very important to the Apollo program, and especially for Apollo 13. But also, I would add, oh, so very important when NASA started working on and planning shuttle missions to Mir and the operations of the International Space Station. In fact, uh, the Agena actually provided a bit of a bright spot to the Gemini 8 mission. This was because, with uh, great forethought in difficult circumstances, Dave Scott had the presence of mind, just before Gemini 8 pulled away from Agena, to put the Agena into a mode where it could be commanded from the ground. So, even after Gemini 8 had returned to Earth, Agena was still on orbit and still able to respond to commands. 
So the flight control team saw this as an excellent opportunity to learn a bit more about the Agena spacecraft, uh, particularly once it was finally confirmed that the problems that, uh, of Gemini um, had originated with Gemini itself. This left NASA with a fully functional Agena spacecraft on orbit, with a full load of fuel, in fact, more fuel than they could really use, since the Agena had been expected to use up a lot of that fuel during docked operations with Gemini. Uh, in some ways, it was a very good thing that the flight controllers would have this opportunity. Um, they found out quickly uh, that, once again, assuming that experience on one vehicle or in one particular environment gives you insight into how a new spacecraft will operate, is a kind of dangerous assumption. The first thing the flight control team attempted, once the Gemini crew was safely on the ground and they had time to complete a full inspection of Agena, was to just try a simple set of orbital maneuvers to raise its orbit from 300 kilometers to a bit over 400. This, no doubt, would have consisted of doing at least a couple of pausigrade burns, meaning accelerating the spacecraft along its uh, flight path. The first of these burns uh, would have raised the apogee on the other side of the orbit, and then that new apogee, uh, at that new apogee, another burn would have been performed to raise the new perigee, the spot where the original burn had been performed up to the apogee. Well, that was the plan anyways. Unfortunately, after completing the plan, Gina's orbit was checked and it was not at all what was expected. Instead of a circular orbit, they were in a 400 by 625 kilometer elliptical one. This immediately set off a round of consultation uh, between MCC and the Lockheed uh, support team. Now, in looking back 60 years, it's important to realize the constraints the team was working under. Again, in our world of omniscient video gaming, we sort of have a picture of the team looking at a 3D model of the spacecraft trajectory and working out different options on screen in real time. Uh, this was not like that at all. I don't know for sure, uh, but I suspect that telemetry from, from Agena was pretty limited. Probably both limited in the opportunities to get it, depending on what part of the Earth it was passing over, and also limited in terms of the rate at which data was sent down. In fact, it may have been as limited as being able to get a single set of data a few times per orbit. It's also true that there would likely have been a very limited tracking data. After all, the spacecraft would have had very limited capacity to know where it was, and establishing its orbital parameters would almost certainly have required external tracking from radar sites on the ground and there would have been a limited number of those available every orbit as well. And also, don't forget that the flight controllers were not engaging in anything like uh, real-time control of the spacecraft. Uh, no, uh, control would have been affected by sending it discrete command words that were established pre-flight. And also, don't forget that Agena had not been built with independent maneuvering in mind. And then, the maneuvering was expected to be pretty minimal. In fact, the contract with Lockheed only specified that it be able to respond to a thousand command inputs over the entire mission. So when I say the team was left scratching their head about why they were not getting the results from orbital maneuvering that they expected, eh, you might be able to understand why that might be true. At first, the team wondered if their center of gravity calculation was off. This probably would have meant that the spacecraft would not have been pointed correctly prior to the burns, and it also would have meant that the spacecraft might have had trouble maintaining the correct attitudes during the burn. 
um, there was some uncertainty because they did have a much greater load of fuel on board than they had expected. So they tried again with, it must be said, not bad, much better results. Next, the team took a look and decided that maybe they misunderstood the yaw limits of the gimbal of a genus main engine. Main engine. Perhaps the engine was slewing farther than expected and thus over-controlling when it tried to maintain attitude control. And they tried again. After the next series of maneuvers, they found they were now in another elliptical orbit, this time 210 by 475 kilometers. Eh, it was still not what they wanted, but they felt that they were closing in on the solution. And over the next few hours, they continued to work with their spacecraft and to learn the nuances of how it performed. In the end, they issued more than 5,000 commands to the spacecraft, exceeding the requirement by a factor of five, and they also performed 10 maneuvers requiring the, the main engine, uh, and this was twice as many engine restarts as the Agena had signed up for as well. So in all, it was actually a very good flight for Agena and the Agena flight control team. They learned a lot about their spacecraft, and ultimately by the end, they felt they were uh, getting a, ha a handle on its idiosyncrasies. They were confident, quote, moreover, that Agena Solo had demonstrated that the target vehicle could help fly more elegant missions, unquote. And that's from Hacker and Grimwood on the shoulders of Titans, A History of Project Gemini. As for the Gemini spacecraft, while Agena was getting some on-orbit exercise, the Gemini engineers were rapidly isolating the issue that had caused the problem. In the end, they concluded that the problem was a short in the electrical system somewhere upstream of thruster number eight that essentially prevented it from responding to controls. Um, the design issue was that even though the thruster was off, it was still receiving power. And so this simple electrical problem not only caused it to fail on, uh, it also prevented it from being disabled unless power was removed from the whole maneuvering system. And so that single failure meant that the OAMs effectively became unusable. Um, so the system was redesigned so that when thrusters were not being used, they were also unpowered, a design feature that was doubtless carried over to every other succeeding NASA spacecraft design. So within a few days of the hair-raising events of Gemini 8, the Gemini program was able to claim that it had accomplished the first, the first docking of two spacecraft, that it had fully tested its new target vehicle, and that it had discovered and fixed a potentially dangerous flaw in their spacecraft design. And they had also learned some valuable lessons about avoiding complacency and about ensuring that successful spaceflight um, not only required highly skilled and professional crew on orbit, it also required that they have the support of a highly professional flight control team on the ground, a single flight control team on the ground. In the future, whenever challenging and new activities were planned on orbit, they would be scheduled where possible to ensure that the ground was online and ready to support the crew on orbit. I can certainly tell you that was true in my days in mission control. And with those hard-won lessons hoisted firmly on board, NASA turned its eyes to the next flight, Gemini 9, which was actually only a few weeks away. Uh, for us, it's a couple of weeks away as well, because that's pretty much all the time we have for today. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.